welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I'm Ira Creaseman. And on this episode, we will be discussing the gameplay and art of Final Fantasy VI with a pretty heavy focus on steampunk. What does that mean? What is it? What role does it play in this story and in its aesthetic? I'll warn you up top, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time discussing the gameplay. If this was the first game in the series, we would spend a whole lot of time discussing the gameplay because I think both of us agree it's quite fun to play, but it doesn't introduce a ton of new concepts to the series. One thing I think is really interesting is that Hiroyoku Ito is a co-director on this game, and we talked about that up front about how this is the first game in the series that is not just directed by Hironobu Sakaguchi. It is co-directed by Yashinori Kitase and Hiroyoku Ito, who had previously been responsible for the game design. He's coming off of, in Final Fantasy IV, the invention of the active time battle system, which is a system that's so popular that when they announced it would be a part of the Final Fantasy VII Remake in the year 2019, a crowd full of people erupted with <laughs> cheers that there will be active time battle system. Even the announcement of it, like they knew, like that we're bringing this back into the franchise. People love it so much. He had done that in four, reinventing combat in role-playing games. In five, the job system. Again, blowing out this phenomenal concept that is basically still the underlying reason why MMORPGs are fun to play to this day. So he's coming off sort of back-to-back -back revolutionary inventions, or at least in terms of the job system, more executions of that invention. So in six, he just kind of built around the edges of what had already been successful, and maybe that had in part to do with the, the fact that his focus may have also been on directing the game. And this is part of the reason why the story is so complex and nuanced. And it's the thing that's revolutionary in the game more so than the gameplay systems. But there are still some interesting ones. I know that people who love this game and love the gameplay of it know all the ins and outs. Like I love the gameplay, but I'm not one of those people who knows all the ins and outs. In, in prepping for our discussion, uh, you know, I've played this game many times, but if I'm taking notes, I kind of like to be able to watch somebody else play. So I go to YouTube and I find a, a Let's Play. And the guy I watched, Phoenix Down, would go over, you know, why he, he puts together characters the way he does, you know, which pieces of equipment get you the best magic defense and how to take advantage of certain mistakes or bugs, all of which is really cool, none of which is really my thing. Right, right. And and mine either. We, we've talked before about how we don't really uh, play the games in those ways. And it's one thing that I do think Six adds to uh, the entire discussion here is there are a lot of secrets. And we even talked about some of them throughout. We don't know all of them. I think just having played it a bunch, we know most of them. But that was one of the fun things that was added is there's a lot of little things that you can do throughout the game that you kind of just have to discover through playing with its mechanics a little bit. One of those tricks that I actually found out from the first strategy guide, one of the first strategy guides I ever bought, uh, was the invisible X zone trick. So if you 
If you turn an enemy invisible, they are much more likely to be hit by whatever magic, though they're not at all likely to be hit by your physical attacks. So it makes them more likely to be uh, taken out by the, uh, the, the instant death magics, like sending them to the X zone or casting doom or whatever. So all that stuff is really fun, but just to talk about the things that are different from Final Fantasy V to VI, there's no uh, job class system, though everybody has uh, a job. Uh, everyone's got a, some kind of a class. Some of the, the classes seem to be uh, unique to this world. Some uh, have some of the same holdovers from Final Fantasy V, like, you know, the Locke is a thief and he can steal things. Strago's a blue mage and he can cast monster magic. But, you know, uh, Mog is, what, a dancer? And a geomancer. Right, but he has to learn his, his uh, skills from the various lands. Uh, I think Terra's considered a Magitek knight. Great, what, is, what does that mean in Final Fantasy? Right. She's kind of a red mage, uh, which I really dig because I love red mages and right. I love Terra. Whereas uh, Cyan is very clearly samurai. So some of but them doesn't are have a any... more clear cut. Sure, but he doesn't have any of the samurai abilities from Final Fantasy V or Final Fantasy Tactics. Like no, his, he has his, his sword techs. Unique take on it yeah right so i like that each character has a unique set of skills but what i do have are a very particular set of skills i think that's pretty cool though i think some are more useful than others sabin being able to input you know street fighter commands to use his blitzes is pretty cool yeah cyan much as i like quadraslas and quadraslam that you have to build up Just to it wait each for time it to happen is yeah is not the annoying. most exciting yeah. <laughs> Celeste's being able to absorb magic is cool, but it's not always relevant. Yeah, you know that sort of thing. So I like it. I like that each character is unique in that way, but they also can all learn all the spells, and that's largely what I use them for after a while. So the magicite system is interesting, right? You have to equip a magicite, and then you can summon that esper and learn the abilities uh you know learn various spells from that esper depending on how many uh, ability points i think you get in each battle right and then if you level up while equipped with a particular esper most of them will give you some sort of a, a stat boost which is pretty cool yeah this is the part of the system that's the most fun to play with uh, kind of like the materia system in seven there's on the surface it's very easy to play with and then you can make it as deep as you want. And I've always thought there was something pretty cool about the characters ultimately learning the spells from the magical beasts, having spent enough time with them. I, I like that concept. Uh, and it gives you a very satisfying notion of making your character stronger and stronger as they go through it. You can even go in and check on their progress. You, oh, you're 35% of the way toward learning this spell. And, and that's pretty cool. And the people who really know this system will know which espers are best to equip, even if you're not trying to learn the spells because you want those particular stat upgrades. Right. There are also the relics, so you can equip helmets, weapons, shields, and armor, but also various relics that have different effects. And I, I like that. Uh, so you could have, you know, there's no dragoons, but you can equip the dragoon boots and then you can jump or the sprint shoes and then you can run around. You can have the white cape and get a better magical defense, I think. Uh, only two people can equip the memento ring, which will protect you from instant death. And it's, uh, it's Realm and Shadow, who both have a connection to a particular woman. So I, I, like, I like all that, but I don't know it as well. Yeah, it's interesting that in this game, the relics sort of take the place of 
like support magic or support jobs that rather than have someone who you know, casts all of these things, you can just sort of customize your party uh, with the relics. I, I think it adds, it's interesting that it adds to the lore of the world. We're talking about relics of the past and rediscovering technology, and we'll get into the steampunk thing here in a minute. But I also think it's it's interesting that little trinkets are what give you these boosts in battle. It has already been a thing that you could be attacked from behind. So, you know, your character's set up on the right and the enemy's on the left, and, and so... If you're caught unawares, your characters will be facing the wrong way. But in Final Fantasy VI, there are a lot of different permutations of that. So you could be surrounded, so your characters are in the middle, and there are enemies on both the left and the right, which I think is really neat. Or you can surround the enemies sometimes, so you've got characters on the left and right, and the enemies are in the middle. I like... Uh, I've mentioned this a lot in the last several episodes, but that some, some dungeons require more than one party, so that you can use lots of different characters. I think that's really cool. Yeah, that was a really neat solution, I think, to a problem they came across in Final Fantasy IV where they kept writing characters in and out of the story so that you could have your party exist a certain way. I love, and we've talked about it, but those big battle scenes in Six are so epic. And yeah, being able to switch between three different parties and move them around strategically to tackle a map. And something that hasn't really been done since. And I don't know... Why? I guess just because the parties haven't been big enough to really require that, but it's been, it's really fun. It allows you to to have strategy in the concept of forming not just a party, but three different ones. And how do you put your characters together and with what Magisite just adds to that level of customization. There are three things I want to talk about that I feel like are innovated here in Final Fantasy VI and then really expanded upon in Final Fantasy VII. And those three things are mini-games, limit breaks, and kaiju. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Final Fantasy VI is not the first one to have a mini-game. Final Fantasy I is. We talked about the little slider mini-game that you can do. But uh, Final Fantasy VI has the, uh, the auction house, the Colosseum, and the Velt. And each of these feels to me like a sort of precursor to what would be the Golden Saucer in Final Fantasy VII. The auction house is in the rich town of Jador, and mostly this is just a vehicle for you to be able to buy a couple of pieces of Magisite. But later on in games like Final Fantasy XI and Final Fantasy XIV, there would be an auction house because your characters can create and build things, and then your character can sell them to get in-world money, which is pretty cool. The Velt is more just like a special region where you don't gain experience, but you can get Gao to learn his various rages. Uh, again, people who know how to play this game know all the intricacies, know which rages to use against which enemies to have the best outcome. I never learned that stuff. I think it's cool. But again, that's sort of diving more deep into the mechanics of things, and that's just not... I'm just not as interested in that. Yeah. Colosseum, I despise. Yeah, this sucks. Let's be honest. This is the worst part of this game. Good thing it's totally optional. So the way it works is you bet an item and then you choose a character. If, you know, if you bet an item worth something, it will you, you'll, your character will automatically, your single character will automatically fight against whichever enemy is chosen by that particular item. And presumably then you'll get a better item. 
again, the guy I was watching so I could take notes, Mr. Phoenix Down, he knows this game really well. And so, you know, he knows how to set characters up so they have the best chance of winning against that particular enemy. And it is the best way and sometimes the only way to get certain items. And that part's annoying. Because the randomness yeah. of it, the lack of control you have. I don't know why they decided that was the design route. This could have been really, really fun if they just let you control your character in battle like you do all the rest of the time and in all the other Final Fantasy games. I don't know why they made it random. And even then, like, okay, fine. I could even see it be compelling where you you don't have control. You kind of get to watch the character that you built fight it out, but they're prone to doing really stupid stuff like attacking themselves or just casting magic that makes no sense. And and so, yeah, it, it's unfortunate because this could have been really fun. So those are the, the sort of mini games of Final Fantasy VI. Final Fantasy VI has the advent of the limit break, which I'm sure we'll talk more about when we get to Final Fantasy VII. Uh, it's not really a limit break in the same way it is in Final Fantasy VII, because in Final Fantasy VII you have a limit meter, and when your character, you know, every time you get hit, the meter fills up, and then when your character gets filled up, they can do a special attack. In Final Fantasy VI, if your character is low on hit points, and I think they have to be low enough to be in the kneeling animation, Right. Uh, if you attack, there's like a 1 in 99 chance that they will use whatever their particular desperation attack is. Everyone has a different one, and it's all themed to their sorts of things, and I can't remember what any of them are off the top of my head. And I think it's neat, because it's just this thing that sometimes happens if you are particularly desperate and lucky. But I like the way it's done in Final Fantasy VII better, because you can plan some of your strategy around it. Right. They they definitely would nail the idea in the future. And then 8's got a weird permutation of it, too, that's closer to this. But sure. it, it is interesting. It, again, the randomness of it. It's like there's the heart of a really good idea here. But you could play this entire game and never even know that these desperation moves were in it. Right. Which has its own sort of allure. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to mention was optional bosses. This is not the first game to have optional bosses in Final Fantasy either. Like like I said, you know, Final Fantasy 1 did it first. They had Warmech, freaking Warmech that I lost oh. to and then never saw again. I still haven't seen that freaking thing. It. You'll get over it one day. <laughs> uh, but there are these very specific monsters that uh, the, the game encourages you to go out and hunt. So there's the eight dragons, and there's Pumbaa, and there's Doomgaze. And uh, an Atma weapon, I guess, could be could be a version of that. And that would be something that would really be built upon in Final Fantasy VII with the weapons. And in fact, I would say Atma is a kind of a precursor to the weapons of Final Fantasy VII. Because in Final Fantasy VII, they're basically these giant monsters or kaiju-type monsters that are created by the planet, not unlike Godzilla, in an attempt to destroy the human scourge that is destroying the planet, which is kind of what uh, Godzilla is a metaphor for. Atma weapon was, you know, sort of created out of the War of the Magi, you know, as, as a way to fight against other presumably Magi. Uh, so it's not quite the same, but I think it's at least a similar idea. These giant kaiju monsters rampaging across the worlds. So the Warriors of Light have to do something about it. Yeah. 
And for anybody who is way into the mechanics of Final Fantasy VI, I'm afraid that's really all I've got to say on the matter. We'd be more than happy to read a dissertation if anyone would like to argue that we've missed something here, or that it's perhaps a bit more innovative and revolutionary than it appears on the surface. But I also think there's something to be said for sticking with a really good system, adding things to it, trying to perfect it. Honestly, we're going to have a very similar conversation when we get to 7. There aren't a whole lot of huge innovations in that one either. It's just more perfecting of a really good system, and that, that's a worthwhile endeavor as well. I will say that when we get to 7, I'm going to complain about having only three party members instead of the usual four. Or if we were going to change the number of party members, why couldn't we go up to 5 like in Final Fantasy 4? Uh, hipster. Final Fantasy hipster fan. Whatever, man. I liked it before it was cool. <laughs> All right, let's talk about steampunk. putting this conversation off for just a little while. I, I want to begin, oddly enough, with the first sentence on the Wikipedia page for Final Fantasy VI under setting. Because it says here, in contrast to the medieval settings featured in the previous Final Fantasy titles, Final Fantasy VI is set in a world with prominent steampunk influences. The structure of society parallels that of the latter half of the 19th century, with opera and the fine arts serving as recurring motifs throughout the game, and a level of technology comparable to that of the Second Industrial Revolution. So we've talked a lot about that as we went throughout the game, but let's dive more deeply into this whole concept. Steampunk is not just an aesthetic. And it's also not just a genre. It should be understood that steampunk is actually really a, a whole culture that people engage in. I am very much a tourist in this world. I find it fascinating. I love it. But uh, I want to admit to anyone who's listening to this who considers themselves a steampunk, uh, I'm, I am not one of you as much as uh, I love all of the stuff. But the history of it, and, and I want to be very cognizant of the fact that it's not just an aesthetic when you talk about steampunk people oftentimes go straight to goggles and top hats and, and the aesthetic part of it and we'll get into that and that's important but there are themes and philosophies that underlie this whole thing that play throughout final fantasy 6 so let's back up a minute where does the term come from it was coined in 1989 by a writer named K.W. Jeter, whose most famous work is a book called Infernal Devices. He was looking for something to describe what he and a couple of other writers were doing. The writers he named were Tim Powers, whose most famous work is the Anubis Gate, and James Baylock, who wrote the Homunculus. These are kind of the modern seminal works of people who were purposefully trying to write inside of this as a genre, and he coined the term steampunk going off of, oddly enough, a term that had already existed, cyberpunk. It's tempting to think that those might be flipped 
the other way around because science fiction comes out of fantasy and cyberpunk is typically more closely linked to science fiction and steampunk to fantasy. But the term cyberpunk actually comes first. And that's where the whole punk thing is about because very common in cyberpunk stories is the notion that with high technology also comes this sort of low life, low class. The seminal work of cyberpunk is Ridley Scott's Blade Runner in 1982. In the late 80s, this becomes well known, but of course, steampunk already existed. It just wasn't being called that. These authors were hearkening back to works by people like Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, Mary Shelley, and in the United States, Edgar Allan Poe. Some seminal works, you might think of The Time Machine, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Around the World in 80 Days, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. These are the works that sort of drive what steampunk, at least in terms of storytelling, is all about. They're typically based around the 19th century. Uh, Victorian England is the most common setting, but sometimes you'll see them in the wild, wild west, literally in Wild Wild West, which is a steampunk story. Obviously, Final Fantasy VI has its own fictional world rather than taking place in one of our own, but it mirrors this time in our world. All right, so I am uh, an English teacher and a librarian, and I have a, a vague idea what steampunk and cyberpunk are based upon, you know, being literary genres and, and you know, trying to be a writer and all that. I do wonder, and I'm, you know, I've never had this confirmed, so maybe you can confirm it for me here. The the punk aspect, it, it seems to me that in uh, cyberpunk, at least, it's punk, at least in as much because there's some, you know, let, let's say an energy company had taken over, right? So we're rebelling against the, the mega corporations, right? In Shadowrun, it, the, the shadow runners are the heroes, but they're also criminals because they're working against these mega corporations that have taken over the world that are, that are very fascist-like in a lot of ways. So I wonder if the punk in cyberpunk and in steampunk can be fighting against that monarchy. Yeah, that, and that's typically the motif, right? That That's very common in steampunk stories as well. Uh, for example... Emerald City, which is a really great little gem of a flick, by the way, featuring a young Saoirse Ronan. If anyone hasn't seen this, about these people that all live underground in this machine clockwork style city, and they think their lives are one thing, and it turns out it's being very oppressive, and it's the young rebels who have to defy all of the rules and all of the laws to discover that you know, a little bit of a spoiler here. It's not the whole theme of, but if you haven't seen it, if you want to see it, skip ahead a few seconds, but that they don't have to live underground. It, it, it's a great movie, but yeah, so it's very common in these. I haven't seen uh, Mortal Engines, Peter Jackson's film about the oh, sure. cities that move, but just from the trailers, you can tell there are rebel punks at the core of that, rebel scum, if you will, uh, fighting back against it. So yeah, I think that you you tend to have those. And the characters in Six, who I think are really the punks, I think that's one of the reasons why Locke is so interesting. Is He's at the 
the middle of the punk rebel uh, nature of it. It's interesting considering some of our heroes are literally royals. Right, which also happens a lot in these stories. And we talked about that's that's sort of a rebels versus empire trope as well. But the other characters that fit into it, but coming more from a slightly different way, is that steampunk has a huge focus on human-based craft. We talked about that in the final plot episode, that engineering and mechanical devices, that you should be able to pull them apart and understand their function, and that everything should have a unique design, say, as opposed to everybody having the same kind of smartphone or the same kind of TV or laptops that all function the same way, that engineering is also an art form and a human-based one. And that is where characters like Edgar, Setzer, and Sid are steampunks because we, we talked about how like overwhelmed Edgar is when he first steps aboard the blackjack and that's a very steampunky thing to do to be aghast at the craft as well as the engineering that a human being in this case daryl put together very steampunky not just because it's an airship which is a common aesthetic so would that suggest then that the empire in being more mechanized is outside that punk aspect of steampunk because they sort of look like they're assembly line. Uh, they've got that assembly line aesthetic with the conveyor belts and the hooks and the and the robotic arms and whatnot. So it's sort of the robots building robots, which is what I think of when I see you know car manufacturers these days. Right. So does that put them well outside the punk part of steampunk? Or at least they're they're beginning to break the conventions thereof, right? They're not happy living in a world powered by steam. They're trying to find the next big power, uh, which in this case is magic. It parallels, you know, a lot of people ask the question, so why tell stories? Why is this a genre? There aren't a ton of stories in this genre or aesthetic or culture, but there are a decent number of them and they're becoming more and more popular. And I've heard a lot of people suggest it's because we are recognizing now that a lot of the things that we've invented to help us power our world are also poisoning it to death. And fossil fuels are, are very obviously one of those things. And these are the fears that even Jules Verne and H.G. Wells had back in the day, that this was going to happen. And it's romantic to look back and wonder, what if we could have powered it all on steam? What if we didn't have to poison our world and maybe we'd move a little bit slower and maybe it'd take longer to make all of your devices, but they'd be unique and they'd be made of craft as opposed to being the most powerful, most efficient, absolute best thing it can be, but it's also killing us. I find that interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it, the, the poisoning of the planet is... Uh, you know, strongly paralleled in six with Kefka poisoning Doma and then breaking the planet and seeming, you know, then the, the oceans turn purple and the skies turn orange and all that. I think that's a, a, an interesting parallel. But the other thing I find interesting about that is one of the reasons technology becomes standardized, you know, one, one of the reasons we have the Industrial Revolution is because it makes technology available to the masses. So on the one hand, it may well be that the way our technology has gone has made it uniform and has poisoned the planet. But the, at the same time, making it uniform means everybody can have it. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely think there are arguments to be made on the other side of this. Uh, a lot of our favorite Japanese storytellers don't seem very interested in telling that side of the story. They they seem much more, you know, concerned about this. And, and I think there's an argument to be made that, you know, storytellers are harbingers of possibilities, are warning us of things that could happen. And it's, it's not necessarily the job of a compelling story to tell us what's already good about the world. Fair enough. Maybe, you know, I, I don't know, but I, I think you're right. I, I think there's definitely something there. You, you can make a very strong case for the internet being something that levels the social playing field and isn't really poisoning the planet, though you could also make an argument that it is poisoning some minds, not the internet itself, but applications of it. And those are more themes for for cyberpunk stories that we will definitely get into at some point here. Well, in the next game, actually, is is when we'll do that. Right, right, right. Um, I do want to go over a quick list here of some of the more common aesthetics that people might be familiar with. You're going to see cogs and gauges and gears, airships, very big. Uh, a lot of influence from Leonardo da Vinci, who, you know, not in terms of storytelling or anything, but his drawings of flying machines very much still inspired new steampunk things being made today. Steam itself should be all over your, your steampunk story. You should see a lot of that coming out of the uh, trains are very common. The garb of the 19th century, top hats, long coats, corsets, canes, and uh, automatons. This is something that's important to understand the difference between an automaton and a robot. You'll find robots in cyberpunk. Robots will have artificial intelligence of some kind, operate uh, on their own. Automatons are just like we automatons actually exist. You can get it's a humanoid looking hunk of metal, basically, that if you program with enough clockwork, and that really is, I think, one of the big watchwords of steampunk, something that can work on clockwork. So it, it's imitating life, but it is in no way, even artificially, intelligent. It is worth noting that the aesthetic you point out here is largely European and maybe even British and maybe even London-based. When we talk about steampunk, we're tending to talk about the steam innovations that, uh, as they were understood in Europe. And so that whole fashion you called it Victorian, that's after Queen Victoria of uh, England, right? So it is kind of uh, Eurocentric, which is not necessarily inherently negative, but it is a bit limiting. And so it's interesting to see, you know, a Japanese role-playing game uh, give all these characters very European-sounding last names, uh, even when some of them are samurai, for example. Right. Uh, and there's also, you know, the Italian influence of the Renaissance. And again, Leonardo da Vinci and names like Kefka Palazzo, who is an Italian clown. At least derived from those you know, understandings of clowns. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things I think makes Final Fantasy VI extraordinarily compelling because it blends all of the Eurocentric stuff with a ton of Japanese influences, obviously, because that's where they are that's who they are that's what they know best but also we talked about the introductions of americana and i think in final fantasy 6 there's even more middle eastern and african influences even in designs of characters like gogo 
and the music. There, there's a lot of stuff that sounds more like it's from the rest of the world. So it, it's one of the most fully global steampunk stories that there are, because you're right. I feel like most of them tend to stick to. I've got a list of, of some of them here we can just run through. Wild Wild West sticks to the American Wild West aesthetic. But again, that's limiting, right? It's just, it's there. It's it's interesting, but it does what it does. And then there's a bunch of these European ones. Sherlock Holmes, the new Sherlock Holmes movies with uh, Robert Downey Jr. Steampunk. Hugo, which I absolutely loved. Very Eurocentric. Emerald City that I talked about, Mortal Engines. Uh, now, here's an interesting twist on it. Almost everything Guillermo del Toro does has steampunk influence, especially the Hellboy movies, most especially Hellboy 2 and that clockwork golden army at the end. And so that's a, a different spin that isn't Eurocentric as well. And just for a few more fun examples, particularly from the animated world, The Great Mouse Detective, of course, because nice. it's taking yes. off of Sherlock Holmes. Atlantis, The Lost Empire is a steampunk movie. Uh, the most obvious one, because it's right there in the name, highly, highly recommend Steam Boy. If you haven't seen sure. it, yep. very good. Eurocentric anime, which does this Japanese European thing very well. Treasure Planet is is a very fun. Interesting. Uh, is it Disney? I'm not even sure. Uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it's Disney. Yeah. I would have said that what might have been more cyberpunk. It's but got it's definitely drawing. Of yeah. Yeah, that's neat. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. And then two really interesting ones from one of our favorite filmmakers, Hayao Miyazaki, Castle in the Sky and Howl's Moving mm -hmm. Castle. Howl's Moving mm -hmm. Castle, the castle itself, is a really cool example of a mixture of fantasy and pragmatic technical engineering design that you're only going to find, as far as I can tell, in Hayao Miyazaki and in Final Fantasy. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, there's an interesting history. There are a lot of video games that have the steampunk either as a setting or at least a, as part of their aesthetic. Bioshock is probably the most famous in the modern world. It's very purposefully steampunk, not just in the way it looks, but in its themes and philosophies as well. Mist from back in the day. Uh, and I think they're wow, still making huh. some new I wouldn't have thought of that. games. Yeah. Very cool. much built around steampunk concepts. I've never played the Dishonored games, but they look super cool and Square's making them now, so maybe I should, but I, I know they're steampunk just from the trailers. Valkyria Chronicles, which were a lot of fun, have elements of steampunk reimagined histories where you go back and you put mechs in World War One, you know, stuff sure. like that. Uh, yeah. They're running on steam. And then other Final Fantasy games. Nine has elements of steampunk and Tactics has some mm -hmm. elements of steampunk, but I wouldn't say that either of those are set in a steampunk world the way six right. is. Yeah, I, I, I think I can agree with that. Maybe maybe nine. Nine might get there. Five also has some elements in the uh, the amplification machines and the fire ship. Um, right. And of course, they all have airships, uh, so they all uh, lean that way a little bit here and there. Right. So, Drew... Yep. got a question for you. Yeah. This is uh, an episode about the gameplay, nominally, and the art, largely, of Final Fantasy VI. And we've just spent about 20 minutes talking about the genre of steampunk. What does the genre of steampunk have to do with the art 
of Final Fantasy VI. Yeah, well, uh, quite a bit, mostly in terms of its locations. The characters are still, you know, there are some elements in there, but you don't see a lot of top hats and goggles and cogs. Like, they're still very much Yoshitaka Amano characters, and we'll get into that in a minute, but it's mostly the settings. It's the fans and the steam of Figaro Castle that moves and attracts and burrows into the desert and can move along an underground pathway toward another location. Uh, very steampunk. You talked about Vector. It's it's sort of on the other end of that spectrum where they're starting to move out of it. But still, you've got cranes and levers and conveyor belts. Uh, these kinds of things very heavily influenced. The towns that are sort of cobblestone towns with little bits of technology that are starting to come out of the oil lamps, obviously the train, the ghost train. And I mentioned Edgar Allan Poe earlier. A lot of people don't think of him as an early steampunk writer, but a lot of these ghosts and cogs and trains, a lot of that comes from him. And, and so, yeah, I, I think it's mostly in the locales and then obviously the airships and, and a lot of the storyline elements that we talked about it pushes those things. But in terms of the artwork, I really do think it's in the way the, the buildings are drawn, the cities work. You know, it's still got like Doma Castle is like the one vestige of the old world. It gives you a real sense of this is a world in transition. But one of the other things that I think is really interesting is that modern steampunk, like people who actually practice this stuff, they don't just go around wearing like hats and goggles. They're taking old technologies and repurposing them to do things. An old saw from the 1900s that used to be the size of a room. Well, now that's somebody's work table. Or, you know, like we were talking about Gao's breathing device. It looks sure. like it came yeah. right out of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, and that's something that a modern steampunker might turn into a lamp or a table or an ottoman. And so repurposing is a very big part of it as well, which brings us back to one of the watchwords of this game that I pointed out at the very beginning, to rediscover. And, and so I think that it just impacts, you know, all of Edgar's tools are aesthetically steampunk and pretty much everything about Setzer fits into this category though he's got his own unique way of entering it and so it just really it gives a color to everything in the world that makes it pop in a way and because they drew on influences not just from European steampunk as you point out but their own Japanese concepts of it American concepts of it and in ways I don't think I've seen anywhere else, Middle Eastern and African concepts of what might a steampunker look like in Africa. Well, that's Gao, you know, or in the Middle East. That's that's Gogo. Aesthetic. I'm just talking about the Amano drawings here, the artwork. It forced Amano, and we'll talk about in future episodes, Uematsu, the setting of this world, to get outside of the comfortable tropes of medieval knights and ladies and realms and you can do a lot of stuff inside of that but they got to go crazy here
So why don't we start talking about some of the character designs because that is one of my favorite things about these early Final Fantasies because Yoshitaka Amano is an awesome possum. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Tara Branford, in Amano's art, she does not have green hair. Yeah, this is one of those big controversies. So yeah, she's a, you know, a, a slim young lady wearing a, a sort of pink and red outfit. Uh, it's, it's largely uh, skin tight and it's got the flowy bits that he always does. She's got a kind of a cape and she's wearing these very intricate tights it looks like and she's always got a long slim sword uh, and her hair and a ponytail and you know she she lounges upon her magitech armor like it's nothing for her to control and yeah she's uh, I really like the Amano art but I gotta say the green hair I will never picture Tara without green hair yeah yeah that would be something again in our theoretical remake where we would be putting our foot down about like she's gonna have green hair and I know that in a lot of modern interpretations of her, it's blonde, and they say, well, they just made her green because they didn't want her to look just like Celeste, and I, I don't care. It's cool, and it's right, and it, it's at least got to have that hue to it because it gives her, it does set her apart in a good way, and throughout the entire series, it, and I mean, there are characters in anime and in other games with green hair. It's not an uncommon thing to see in anime, but... She's a much more grounded character than that in a lot of ways. And to have it hint to this part of her early on. You know, I, she, yeah, I, she's one of my favorite character designs in the entire franchise. And part of that is, a big part of that is the green hair. And she gets two character designs because she's got a second form. The pink and purple uh, Esper form that uh, in, in the sprite art is mostly just her, but white with pink and purple highlights. Yeah, it, it's uh, almost kind of like beautiful and ethereal. and She's just kind of like yeah. a glowing ball of light, but very clearly still sort of herself. And you're like, yeah, but in some of the sketches. Yeah, she's got claws and <laughs> fangs and her hair's going all Super Saiyan. And she's a little more uh, bestial, which I think is cool because the espers, even the humanoid ones are somewhat bestial. Yeah. And it also makes sense, you know, that she would scare the children or scare all of her right. friends when she first turned into that. So, yeah, again, in, in our remake, uh, we would want to be closer to that iteration of it, I think. It should be a little unsettling. And, and Amano's sketches of her as an esper are deeply unsettling. Our treasure hunter looks to me a lot like Han Solo. He's got kind of a, a vesty jacket thing and he's got a bandana and... Like you said, he's kind of the punk of these steampunks. He's uh, definitely working outside the rules, not only of the Empire, but even of his allies. Yeah, and I think this is one of the characters that you could very easily throw a pair of goggles on him and look right at home. He'd, he'd look more like a standard steampunk character, but again, they weren't necessarily going for standard. He's got the bandanas and the kind of flowing, basic clothes. You're right, he looks a lot like... Han Solo, and I think that's completely on purpose. He could be a, a Han Solo, Indiana Jones crossover. Right. Treasure Hunter, right? If only Harrison Ford was it. we got to get our hands on that de-aging technology so Harrison Ford can play Locke in our <laughs> movie. King Edgar Figaro of the uh, Northern Figarins. 
like like you said, he's one of our more steampunky guys because he's an engineer and he's got tools and uh, he fights with his tools. Uh, if gun blades existed in this world, I'm pretty sure he'd have a gun blade. He's got the chainsaw and the chainsaw reappears in 15 as I think the sword of the tall, which is pretty cool. Yeah. He is one of the more characters uh, sort of in the past being a king. He's got the long blue flowing cape and he's got the regal countenance uh, and he wears more medieval style armor. But also he's an engineer, so he's bridging that gap. Yeah, on some of the Amano sketches, you can see that there appear to be these sort of steampunky clasps and more they, they look more decorative than functional, which typically is not how steampunk works. You want it to be functional. Uh, uh -huh, but uh -huh. he's toying with the idea. We know that Edgar is experimenting with all of these new future things. And so, yeah, it, it would be something I would want to highlight. If you could show more details on his clothing, there would be little clasps and, and belts and gears that hold things together in unique ways. His brother, Prince Sabin, I assume he's a prince, not being the king. Sure, he's uh, never referred to as such, but you're right, he would have to be. And I don't believe he owns a shirt. <laughs> he may not have a shirt. In the pixel art, he's got that blue shirt. He, he's referred to as a bear a couple times, especially by Terra in the beginning, uh, which would suggest some of the Amano artwork has him with a beard, uh, which is probably, but not all of it does. And I assume you'd have to shave a few times during an adventure. But it suggests he's uh, a guy who maybe is less worried about being uh, immaculately trimmed up Maybe doesn't worry if he's got too much arm hair or if he's looking a little shaggy. Yeah. That doesn't really dive into the steampunk aesthetic, I don't think. But I do think it dives into that old world, new world, you know, pre, pre-industrial revolution, post-industrial revolution vibe. Right, right. Somebody still holding on to the ways of the past up at top of a mountain, meditating. Yeah. Which has its benefits because... Blitzes are awesome. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Speaking of characters who live in two worlds, uh, Shadow or Clyde Aroni. Do you think his last name is Aroni? It's never made clear. Maybe that's Realm's mother's name. Yeah, that's what I had always assumed, but I don't know. So Clyde, the train robber, very steampunky, has sort of a, a Western cowboy theme, so Americana-y, but is a ninja, Japanese-y. yeah. Yeah, it's a perfect blend of the, the concept. Celeste Cher, the general. So being, on the one hand, she's a general, which suggests sort of a... I always felt like there was sort of a Napoleonic aesthetic to some of Vector's military aspects. You know, it's very conquer the world. You know, that, and that's literally what they're trying to do. So I like that, uh, you know, again, she's one of these characters who sort of bridges. She's, on the one hand, a soldier... And all our characters use medieval-style weapons. No one's using rifles or anything. But at the same time, she's a, a Magitech soldier, so she's a genetic experiment. Uh, you know, she's a eugenic experiment. Yeah. She is often depicted... Uh, she's got two different character designs. The sprite... The one they went for the sprite art was sort of the green leotard with the white cape. But also a lot of the Amano artwork has her in... I'm pretty sure it's Bruce Lee's tracksuit. Yeah which I totally dig. <laughs> she, she's always armed with a, a long, slim sword, not unlike Terra, and she has long, blonde hair. It's interesting because she is a more classically designed character. It's, it's like you could take her and put her in any of the previous five games, at least as an aesthetic, and 
she fits. It's a more classic, you know, just knight of, of the realm. But I think with her, the thing that's most compelling about her aesthetic, especially in the Amano sketches, is just her face, honestly. Just the way she's kind of always drawn to be this sort of contemplative, melancholy person. And, and you think of her biggest moments in the game, they're, you know, it's the opera and it's a suicide attempt and it's, uh, you know, rallying the troops and all of these things. But you can see in her design the weight of the world on her shoulders. Cyan Garamond, the samurai of the old world sensibilities, though he does not, his uh, character design is not one of what I would think of as samurai. You know, from my understanding as, a, as an American dude, the samurai helmet or the samurai armor. Instead, he's got a very slick, slim, dark blue armor. But he is depicted as usually quite tall and muscly, and he's got long black hair pulled back into a ponytail and a very impressive mustache. <laughs> like, it's not the same sort of samurai style you see in Final Fantasy V, which is what I tend to think of as a guy who's not really very well educated in samurai culture, except through pop culture. Uh, I would not say that Cyan looks much like a samurai. I would say he looks a little more modern. Right. Yeah, and even in some ways, like you mentioned, the sort of classical blue of European medieval knights, um, which is maybe a little more silver, but, but he's got the, the blue there. He's certainly the pulled back ponytail, jet black ponytails are a big deal in samurai culture, if the movies I've been watching my whole life are correct, <laughs> unless, <laughs> uh -huh. they're, unless they're lying to me. So that, I think, and certainly his face, you know, the sort of furrowed brow, the wrinkles in his face. Uh, we talked before about how he's drawn to look like an Asian man, and there aren't a ton of those. You know, a lot of times the characters try to look a little bit race-less. Um, sometimes they're just straight up white people there aren't a ton of minorities throughout final fantasy unless you you know depending on how you interpret some of the designs is maybe a bit more asian right and it sort of depends on what you think the word minority means right like in the u.s it's mostly white people but in japan it's not and so the the fact that you know we've talked uh, frequently about how final fantasy appears to be trying to draw from a variety of cultural influences and so Characters uh, who might seem white to us might not seem white to people from Japan. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I think it's a difficult conversation to have in general, because also we're, we're always talking about worlds in which there is no Japan or America or Europe right. or Africa. Like they're just people of this world. But there's also obviously I think we would both very much agree and have argued this before. There is a place representation is important. We were talking about it with Go-Go. Mm -hmm. We've talked about it with the women who are very important throughout the franchise. And so to see someone who does look like we would, at least you and I would think of the more common Asian look is compelling and, and nice to see. One of the things I think is interesting about a lot of the Amano work for Cyan is that he's frequently got candy He's got like a, a sucker or a lollipop or something. And I, I imagine that's a, a specific thing because I've seen that in certain anime. There are, there are characters who 
and, and it really seems to be the the characters who are stoic like sometimes a stoic dude also has a has a little sucker yeah i like it so as we were just talking about uh diversity and representation there we've mentioned this before there seems to be a distinct lack of black people in final fantasy and here we have gao and i think it would be extraordinarily uh, unfortunately stereotypical to make the one character who does not speak very well and is draped in animal furs the black guy but at the same time he sort of seems to be you know he's from the veldt right right and so i'm i'm kind of glad they didn't fall into that trap at the same time there's still a distinct lack of black people in Final Fantasy. So I'm not sure I'm saying that in the best way I could be. And I think we might talk about that more in Final Fantasy VII, where we do have Barrett. Right. Well, yeah, let's bridge this conversation with another character design. Because in the sprite work, General Leo always looked like just any other white guy. Like we're talking about, some of it's in the eye of the beholder. You, you sort of fill in your blanks. You can't see a ton of his skin in his sprite design. But in a lot of the Amano artwork, General Leo very much appears to be black guy. He's certainly got darker skin than the rest of the characters. It is a bit, uh, it, it's potentially a bit caricature-ish, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's meant to be negative because General Leo is such a cool character, but it, it's not real flattering. He's kind of ugly. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know if maybe, you know, he just happens to be a, a guy who's ugly because let, let's be honest with ourselves barrett wallace is a very handsome man yes no, he is no two ways around that um, especially in some of those remake videos a handsome gentleman handsome handsome gentleman but yeah it, it it is difficult but i think you're right with gal that it was better not to i think if in our reimagining of this story, if we were going to recast a character or two with darker skin, which I think would be very interesting to do, I think there could be some interesting candidates to do that with. Uh, I wouldn't want to do it with Gao. It's too, like you said, yeah, it, it, it's too stereotypical and it can be read in a negative way, even if you wouldn't mean it to be. Um, yeah. Also, I think his sort of bright green hair and... Yeah, he's it, got a cool design. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think he, he works really well uh, as a character in that way. And I think when you're aiming for representation, it's better to give that character a bit more agency. As much as I love Gao, he doesn't have uh, a ton of agency. Most of his actions are guided by other characters in the story. I think Locke could very easily be recast as someone with darker skin. Um, Shadow, yeah. easily, but, but Clyde um, could be. I kind of feel like very few of these characters do... The coloration and uh, facial features of most of these characters could be just about anything. I think Cyan probably needs to be an Asian dude. I think Terra needs to have green hair. I think Gao specifically needs to be not a black guy. After that, I feel like a lot of these characters could be of any Earth-based ethnicity. Right. I, and I think it would be especially compelling if Realm and Strago were a little more Middle Eastern or, or Indian-looking in there. Because a lot of their culture, a lot of what they're wearing and the town of Thamasa and Strago's music all derives from 
those cultures, India and Pakistan and the Middle East and all of that stuff. And, and, and it's coming from that. So, yeah, I, I think those are characters would be really interesting to see just just darkened up a little bit. One of the things I think is interesting about Gao's backstory and his uh, design is that his father seemed to think that he was a monster. Does that mean he really saw him as a monster? Or does that mean, does he have claws? Does, does he have fangs? Is his hair naturally green? Would you want to have this character be designed more, more bestial? Maybe is is his mother an esper? We have no idea. No, I, you know. Oh, uh, that'd be interesting. <laughs> plot twist, or even again talking about a place for representation. Maybe Gao has some sort of physical deformity that, in a two D sprite, you couldn't necessarily show, and not one that makes him incapable, but something that would make apparent in a time where we still don't know a whole lot about the world. You know, scared. So maybe there's a way to, to do that. I'm not sure what, but, you know, yeah, some some kind of, of disability that might drive that point home a little further. And then actually talking about the limitations of the technology, I want to say to maybe, you know, put a cap on that conversation about representation and uh, some some diversity that, that could be put into these early designs. I do wonder how much of it is like the Super Nintendo not being able to handle a whole bunch of different skin tones. Because they're all almost exactly Could the same be. as well. So like yeah. some of it may be the technology, and that may be part of the reason why as soon as they got into the 3D world on the PlayStation the next game, they're like second most screen time character, black guy, because we can do it now. I don't know. I, I'd be interested in finding out the history of that, how much the technology may have played a role in so many of the characters from one through six looking the same, or similar at least. Setsur Gabayini. I love this dude's aesthetic. Speaking of someone who could wear goggles and pull it off, pull anything off. He is particularly pale-skinned in his Amano art, which is interesting. I don't know if that's meant to be just so that he's very European, very white, uh, or maybe, uh, you know, we talked about him being maybe a little thinner, maybe a little more sickly, maybe uh, having some substance abuse issues, uh, finding him in that bar in the world of ruin. It's also um, a popular aesthetic that would be made most popular in the next game by Sephiroth. And Kuja sort of fits this as well, but the slender, to some degree, androgynous or effeminate, silver hair, long silver hair, pretty, pretty boys. They're pretty boys, yeah. they are. Uh, and sets The Marquis of Elmdor. Yeah. The Marquis of Elmdor, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, long jacket, long silver hair, cool dude. Arden Azunia fits this a little bit, I would oh, say. Oh, sure. Interesting. It's, it's a spin. It's yeah. not the long, flowing silver hair, but I feel like he's in that category, aesthetically. Mog the Moogle. Moogles are, you know, Moogles look like Moogles, <laughs> Moogles. Or at least they do up through here. So, you know, sort of a white teddy bear, teddy cat creature with a pink nose and a, and a, a pom-pom dangling off its head and a couple little pink wings and... Not wearing any clothes, so the the aesthetic is is uh, is all based upon the uh, the design of the fantasy race, and it should be noted like the marquee character, the character that's on the front of the box. Yeah, the the front box cover art features Mog, which is an interesting decision considering he has a lot less to do with the story than others, but maybe because they're magical beings, they are also right at the heart of the story. So yeah, sure, potentially. Stragomagus, 
He's got the uh, short old dude design. Uh, in the pixel art, his head is like two-thirds of his body. Big white mustaches. He's got a mohawk. I love that this dude has a mohawk. Yeah, and in some Amano sketches, he does have the goggles. And he's riding like some That's weird right. steampunk hover bike or something. Yeah, it's yeah, he's got like he's got the hover bike, the hover yeah. scooter. Yeah. It's his old man hover scooter. <laughs> and he's got the long red cape and he's got lots of dangly bits. Amano likes his dangly bits on his character art. And Strago's got a lot of jewelry he's wearing. Realm, I don't think she's meant to be too much taller than her grandfather. She is she's got uh, sort of the artist bandana on and she's I don't she she's wearing real eclectic clothes. She's got that I'm sort of a hippie artist and I'll wear whatever I want. Though that might be as much a function of her being a child as being an artist, which I, might yeah. be the same thing. Right. Children are artists. Right. I really I really like her. I like the idea that her magic staff would also be a paintbrush. We you were you mentioned early in your description of steampunk that the fine arts play a role and realm is the epitome of that she might be our leonardo da vinci in a lot of ways she's the one who dreams up things and and you know sketches and, and imagines worlds and beings and landscapes you know she might be bob ross she might be uh pablo picasso i i i really like realm and i think she's a cool character and i love the idea that an artist and through their art uh, through their the magic of their art could be a hero i think that's super neat Absolutely. Umaro! Okay. <laughs> Nothing else to add there. Umaro! Umaro's a big white Sasquatch. Yeah, he is. He's got dark purple skin, and he's a big muscly Sasquatch. And I love his Amano art because he's always got like a giant snowball or a bone club, and I just think that's super neat. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's cool to have a cool big Sasquatch. Cool. Yeah. See, Sasquatches are cool because it's cold. Uh, I guess they're warm because of the fur, but... Yeah. <laughs> Gogo. Gogo's art seems to me to be a deliberate amalgamation of a lot of other characters' designs. Like it, it kind of looks like he's wearing, you know, a quarter of Setzer's jacket and part of Edgar's cape. He's got the full face mask and that's sort of all orange and yellow. Uh, and there's clearly some sort of makeup where his eyes are showing, the, the skin around his eyes are showing. He's got a big old feather and Gogo's cool. But he doesn't quite look like the Gogo from Five who had a long pointed hat and was a little more, I don't know, performancey, which mimes are, but he doesn't look like a French mime at all with the black and the white. Yeah, it, no, it comes more out of the Middle Eastern style traditions or something like, like he's almost wearing garb that a belly dancer could wear, sort of going back to, again, the, the genderlessness of it. So it's a lot less European, but it's not very Japanese either more of a just a globetrotter a, a, a person of the entire world So the Returners. Returners, I think, are the most classic steampunky in the way that I tend to think of steampunk in my 2019 understanding of the word. They've got the goggles. They've got sort of the uh, World War II airmen helmets. Right. They seem to have those bomber jackets, right? They, they're sort of the uh, the World War spy ring music, like the you know the the 
the spies of the Allies, as right. it were. Which, considering that Japan was not on that side in World War II, is, is particularly interesting. The Empire. The Empire's aesthetic is a little more stormtroopery, both in the Star Wars sense and in the Nazi sense. The soldiers are all wearing uh, very drab uniforms. They, uh, I would say they're probably wearing jackboots. In our Rebels vs. Empire episode, we talked about the Empire tending to be faceless. That is, they wear helmets and masks that cover most of who they are so that they're not people so much as they are, uh, dare I say, uh, cogs in a machine. Mm. They, uh, the Empire has that going on. The officer types with their conical red hoods strike me as sort of drawing from the, uh, speaking of racist examples, as being very KKK-ish, which I think we've mentioned before. And then there's the red and black banners that are, you know, obviously paralleling Nazi imagery. So they really made their evil empire, drawing on the aesthetic, at least I think, of some of these horribly fascist groups that caused great and sometimes worldwide destruction. Right. There is a character we haven't really talked much about yet as far as character design, and he's got a few. Kefka Palazzo, the ultimate bad guy of Final Fantasy VI, destroyer of worlds, uh, bringer of the light of judgment, and creepy laugh dude. Yeah, and, and of course he exists in a tradition of characters like this, Joker being the most famous, but his aesthetic is different from that. It's easy to try to say, well, they're both just clowns. He's wearing clown makeup. As I mentioned earlier, Kepka's very specifically based on Italian concepts of this, and it's far more elaborate. It's not just a purple suit and white face paint and, you know, maybe a little bit around the mouth. The guy's got stuff in his hair. He's got colors all over. His robes are extraordinarily elaborate. He's not at all bothered by the fact that he's the only person in this world who dresses this way. <laughs> No, he, he seems to revel in it. Uh, I sort of get the impression it is. I kind of liked how in uh, The Dark Knight they talked about the Joker's face paint as being like war paint. I kind of get the impression that Kefka uses it in a similar way. It's, it's off-putting and he's doing it on purpose, but I think he's also doing it just because he likes it. Yeah, there's that in the CG that came with the PlayStation version of Final Fantasy VI that we haven't talked a ton about or at all about, but... Uh, right, yeah. It's got those those videos, and one of the first shots you see is Kefka's face, but it's through a very steampunky vial of acid. That's a very common thing. There's a lot of acid throughout steampunk lore, and it's almost like you get the sense that he's looking at the magical vats of acid, but he's also kind of looking at himself, making sure that his war paint makeup is right and that his robes are on just right because he's about to go do something horrible it also sort of masks who he is in a way or maybe maybe that is who he is like the the paint is more who he is than he used to be and we don't really know much about who he used to be uh we have that hint that the uh he was one of the first magitech experiments and that's part of what broke him i'm not real on board with the idea that going mad going violently mad is the correct response to trauma. I'm, I'm not really on board with that as a trope. 
so I, I that that suggests to me that he was not that great a person to begin with that he had this sort of self-destructive self-absorbed nihilistic streak in him to begin with and and I wonder if that's who he has always seen himself as you know he he gave himself a new identity because he didn't like what he looked like before it also sort of parallels Darth Sidious his transformation upon Right. dueling Mace Windu and the lightning coming back and striking him and, and that's what gives him his rather horrific looking countenance in the later movies and he and he sort of has this sense about him that you know now the outside matches the inside and I, I kind of wonder if that's part of what Kefka's about he's about the chaos but also elaborateness like when, when you go and see him uh, at the top of his tower he says you know I knew you'd get here and that's why I I had all this entertainment set out for you. Yeah. And I think that point is really driven home by something you alluded to earlier, which is that there are multiple designs for Kefka. As you face him throughout the game, at least in battle, he looks more and more demented, more and more magical, uh, bestial, less human until his final form when he's got wings coming out of him and he's just this completely different version of himself that he's tried to, in his mind, perfect in a way, I guess, humanity and, and himself through that, a lot of it through the attaining of power. And I, I think it would be really interesting to, in a live action retelling a, a show, play with that and show the slow deterioration of Kafka's aesthetic, but his attempts to continue to keep it elaborate. And like, he cares very much about the way he is seen. So we've already, I think, summed up that for the gameplay, we had a lot of fun with it. We enjoyed it quite a bit. We very much enjoy playing this game. In fact, we've played it as much as any video game that either of us have played. Uh, but we probably wouldn't give it top marks for gameplay in the franchise, just owing to the fact that others have been more innovative, revolutionary, what have you. But... And this is much more difficult to judge from the artistic standpoint. How much does this stand out amongst the franchise, amongst other games, books, movies, television shows? I think one of the reasons why you and I are so interested in even the concept of retelling this, and why I hope that at the very least it does get the Final Fantasy VII remake treatment and gets a full 3D remake, is because I'd like to see extra details and more of the steampunk aesthetic really driven home but to see places like figaro castle and doma and vector in full 3d or the small towns like collingen and south figaro and to see these characters and all of their elaborateness brought into a modern visual setting i think it's because it's one of the most compelling in the series and we're about to rattle off 
uh, several games in a row that have unique aesthetics that, and it's difficult to, you know, this one versus that one because they're so different, particularly six, seven, eight, and 10. Nine takes us back a little bit more to medieval but adds some of the steampunk elements. 10 is its own aesthetic altogether we'll eventually get into. But I think that's why for th this is much more of a personal question. So as far as being in this world aesthetically, uh, how pleasing is Final Fantasy VI to you on a scale of zero to a million and seven? You know I don't like <laughs> scales. Rank right? them, scale That's why them, you said zero. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, I, I find it extraordinarily compelling. And it is at least as much because of the character designs as it is because of the world design. Because there are so many different characters who have such an impact, even ones we haven't talked about yet today. I mean, we barely touched on General Leo. Uh, we, we didn't talk about Bannon. And it's because I feel like the world itself is a character because the world goes through such a significant change. The world basically gets a character arc. It starts out, even though there's this sort of shadow of fascist oppression beginning to spread across the world, it starts out fairly bright. Uh, one of the things about steampunk is that there is this sort of reaching for the brightness. Like we're, we're, we're pushing toward the future and that may be dangerous, but it might also be really good. You know, whether or not I find it pleasing, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure that I do find it pleasing. I, I find it compelling. Uh, I, I like that there are so many different people, different kinds of people. I, I think it's interesting to see how the people of Narsh dress differently than the people of Doma, dress differently than the people of Jador, uh, you know, dress right. differently than the people of Zozo, uh, and so on. So I think because it is so big, because it is... Uh, it certainly uh, makes a stab at being diverse, even if it maybe doesn't get there as well as we might like, because it does go through this massive change halfway through. Yeah, uh, on a scale of zero to a million and whatever, I find it compelling. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, and it's definitely one of my favorite aesthetics, and it's why I went through the time to talk about all of the steampunk stuff, because I like this stuff quite a bit, and... Uh, you know, I, I do find it to be one of the more interestingly designed worlds in Final Fantasy. In fact, there's a new show. There was one thing I forgot to mention when we we're going through all the examples, but I'm glad I can bring it up here. There's a show on Amazon Prime now called Carnival Row, starring Orlando Bloom and Cara Delvigne. I don't quite know how to say her name. They're both fantastic in it. And it's the closest thing I've ever seen in live action to something that looks and feels like the world of Final Fantasy VI to me. And it's just so endlessly interesting, I think, for all of the reasons that you talked about, because it is a setting that begs questions in and of itself. When you put something in a steampunk world, you are asking questions about what we do with technology, about hope versus despair over that technology and about all of the things we've talked about within final fantasy six that each one of the characters stands for i i think just putting it there and i think it's similar of the cyberpunk 2 and 7 honestly may if i had to pick the game that has the most compelling setting in the franchise it's probably seven but six and ten i think are in a tie 
right behind it for me. I know you don't like to rank things, but if we were doing our top 10 settings for Final Fantasy games, um, there's no way 6 is outside of my top 3. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. We are also now on Patreon. While the podcast is still free to listen to via archive.org or on Patreon, if you want to download it on your regular podcast services, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. Join us next time when we jump into arguably the greatest soundtrack ever written. Thank you.